Welcome to the Beyond Conflict podcast, where we talk about mental resilience in times of crisis. Beyond Conflict is the mental health charity for people in conflict zones. I'm your host, Yang Mei Ui. In our very first episode of the Beyond Conflict podcast, my guest is humanitarian and author Terry Waite, who spent five years as a hostage and four years in solitary confinement, chained to a wall when he was taken by terrorists in Beirut. Since his release, Terry works for humanitarian and charitable causes and has written numerous books, including Taken on Trust, his memoir about his time as a hostage, and Solitude, which explores aloneness in all its forms. Terry is the founding ambassador for Beyond Conflict. Welcome to the first Beyond Conflict podcast, Terry Waite. Now, you're engaged in many humanitarian and charitable charitable causes. Um, what drew you to become a founding ambassador for Beyond Conflict? Well, I've seen over my lifetime the devastating effects conflict has had on people. And I'm not just thinking of those who engage in conflict, the, the military. I'm thinking of those, in particular, uh, women and children. And you know, following a conflict, um, attention is lost by the general public um, as to the particular area of conflict. But the tragedy and the suffering and the pain remain for a long, long time. I remember going to um, Kosovo some years ago, and I met with a young boy he was about 10 or 11. He was the only surviving member of his family because soldiers had come into the room. They shot every other member of his family and this poor lad hid under a table uh, and was the only one to survive. When I met him, he was totally traumatized. He couldn't speak. And that led us uh, to set up a whole series of trauma clinics across Kosovo, which was set up over a number of years, specifically to deal with that particular problem for mothers and their children who've been utterly traumatized by war. And there were, there were hundreds of them. And that is a so. So, you know, beyond conflict, um, one wants to see an end to sort of these totally unnecessary wars. I think that's that's really a very moving story, and it's just one story out of many. And for us, um, you know, we're very lucky to be living in a fairly stable environment here in the UK, um, and we see all these things happening out out there somewhere beyond our TV screens, um, uh, conflict, uh, war, and we see pictures of people, um, you know, weeping and screaming over their houses being destroyed, um, their family members and loved ones being killed. But we, and then it, and then it goes away because we switch off the TV. But actually, for those people, the trauma lives on, and so the work of Beyond Conflict um, uh, seeks to address that. That is certainly true, and it does live on. Um, I mean, and it lives on in many ways. Um, many, many years ago, when I was a young man, I lived and worked in Uganda. And I had the um, terrible experience of going, living through the Uganda coup. 
when you know literally hundreds of people were murdered and this was a very complex business it was tribal as well as many of many other things political and so on and so forth but um uganda today you know today has never really recovered from that at one time it had one of the finest universities in the whole of africa uh, and <laughs> It's never, never got back to the standard that it was years and years ago. So, you know, the consequences of war, they're passed down from generation to generation as well and affect um, future generations in a most terrible way. And how do you feel that the work of Beyond Conflict, where you're, you're the Beyond Conflict ambassador, how do you think their work can help in situations like this? Well, I think uh, a number of ways. I think, first of all, by drawing attention to the futility of war and the futility of conflict, a constant education. And I think also by trying to demonstrate that there are other ways of actually resolving differences than engaging in conflict. Uh, we, we create. Uh, pictures in our mind, um, negative pictures very often of people whom we don't know and whom perhaps we dislike because we've, we've heard about them, we've read about them and we think, well, they must be a bad lot. i give you an, a, another example of that. Um, I've uh, spent a lot of my life uh, negotiating for the release of hostages. And people said to me, you will never ever be able to speak with, for example, revolutionary guards in Iran. They'll have no time for you. Now I went to Iran. I entered the country at a time of great difficulty when there were huge banners saying, um, ban, you know, death to Satan, death to the great Satan, death to America, death to Britain, so on. And I made uh, relationships with the Revolutionary Guards. I got to know them. I was taken to their home and sat down and had a meal with them and talked together. And eventually um, was able to obtain the release of people who'd been detained there, illegally detained, wrongly detained, um, without payment, without cost. Now, <laughs> the, the point being here is that it was perfectly possible to talk to them perfectly possible to listen to what they had to say um, and you know you don't always have to agree with people um, uh, to be, but the, the important thing is you really must try and understand why they're behaving as they're behaving where they're coming from and again whilst not for one moment um, agreeing with some of the things that happen of course you don't you can still understand and you can still recognize that, um, for instance, in the case of revolutionary guards, they're still people, they still have families. You occasionally, in all terrorist groups, come across the psychopath, um, the person who has no feeling and who will kill ruthlessly and murderously, but not everyone is a psychopath, not everyone at all. And um, so, going back to your question, improving understanding and trying to find new ways along with, the, with, the, with many other people new ways of trying to promote 
good relationships and good understanding between people. And we should never underestimate what um, a small group of people can do, a small group of like-minded people can do. I, I give just one further example of in a slightly different field. Um, I worked with a colleague in South Africa um, at a time when uh, the South African government was in denial about AIDS and it denied that it was a, a real problem and so on and so forth, trying to push it into the background. And with this colleague, we worked with um, a very forward-looking doctor there. We set up a project uh, to enable mothers and babies to have antiretroviral um, treatment. And that project grew and developed and it made a massive impact eventually in South Africa. But beyond that, it spread right across Africa. The, the model, the pattern we set spread. Now that's in a slightly different field, but nevertheless, it, it, it an indication of the fact that a small group of people can in fact affect great change. It doesn't always have to be politicians. In fact, very often it isn't politicians. <laughs> it is, and we're, we're often led to believe because of the way life is structured, that it's only politicians or people in prominent positions who can affect change. That is nonsense. Um, there's a lot individuals could do, and beyond conflict, I hope, will be able to, and is able to stimulate uh, that interest and that concern and that desire. And yes, and Beyond Conflict um, is a really a group of um, like-minded individuals who feel a passion that they want to affect change in the world, and they've come together and created Beyond Conflict. And as a small group, um, the hope is that it will grow and its influence uh, will affect um, people on the ground who've been affected by conflict in one place, a second place, a third place, and uh, uh, hopefully across, across the world in, in time. So that is very exciting. I'm very excited to be part of the project as the podcaster. And and it's wonderful that you're involved um, as the ambassador. Um, may I go back to what you said about um, um, getting to understand people and being and, and finding and actually having a mindset that it is possible to connect with people um, versus the, those naysayers that you you were talking about who said, "Oh no, it's impossible to 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 connect with these these people who are so alien from us, who have beliefs that are so different from us." Um, in terms of uh, 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 you know private individuals, um, and I know I get very exercised um, when when perhaps we're arguing politics or um, things where we've got a difference of opinion, and it's quite easy not to listen. It's quite easy to feel that by listening and staying quiet and and that somehow you're condoning something that you disapprove of or or that you're agreeing with and i think it's a it's a really fascinating point that you make that just because you listen doesn't mean that you agree um have you got any thoughts or tips or or guidance for um for ordinary people like us where um we come across other people whom we may disagree with or we disapprove of um or we have an image in our heads about as, as you mentioned because i think it kind of links in with the point of what you're saying that actually all these um um, big movements of terrible change as well as big movements of small change occur because of individuals becoming involved and so actually there is a personal engagement and personal responsibility and a personal way that we can affect um, the environment around us um, regardless of politicians regardless of you know 
people like you who are doing things on a global stage, how can we as individuals on within our own stage, our own neighborhood, our own network, um, start to perhaps change the way that we behave with people who, whom we disagree with or, or have differences of opinion with? Well, I, I, I think, first of all, you, you don't have to think that you have to sit down with somebody across the table and start to face them with all the points that are points of agreement or points of difference. Um, there's such a thing as doing things together. I, again, I'll give you a further example. Um, for many years now, I've been uh, a patron of the International Musical at Stedford. And the music, International Musical at Stedford, Stedford is, it, it's, it's a Welsh word, and, and uh, it means a gathering. And each year in Wales, people from all over the world come together and, and um, they compete in choral competitions and singing and, and dance. And it was founded in 1947, following World War II, to promote peace and understanding. Now, the great thing about that is that people come from different nations and, you know, one has seen um, people from countries that are at conflict one with another, um, Israel and, and, and Palestine, actually linking together and getting to know each other and sharing together. And I mean, a classic example of that also, the Daniel Barenboim with his orchestra, which is um, composed of the people from Israel and people from Palestine. I mean, sharing together in a common endeavor. And that is something that uh, can have a remarkable effect um, because in so doing, you get to see that the person who perhaps is divided from you by national, cultural, or religious boundaries is actually a human being <laughs> with thought, with feelings, and uh, family, and and relationships, and you you get to see them not just as uh, figures, so not just as negative stereotypes, but as people. And that's the whole essence of it, really, is recognized. One of the positive things, probably, that <coughs> will have come from this um, current epidemic is that, in one way, at one level, it has put us all on the same basis. We're all vulnerable. Uh, we can all be attacked by this virus at any time. And it's made us... Made, at least made some people recognize our common humanity and our dependence one on another. We depend on each other for our survival. And somehow if we can continue to promote some of the positive things that are coming, coming from the, the period of shutdown, then that will be a great benefit. We'll, we'll come to a, a deeper discussion <coughs> of the lockdown and the COVID crisis uh, in, in, in a few minutes. Um, but just to go back to, you know, you were a hostage negotiator and then you yourself uh, uh, became a, a held hostage uh, and you were held hostage in solitary confinement. Um, and that is something quite unimaginable for, 
most of us. Um, how, how did you cope over the four years that you were held captive in, in Beirut? Well, in those years, I was held in very strict uh, solitary confinement. Uh, I was kept chained to the wall for 23 hours and 50 minutes a day. I slept on the floor, on the mattress on the floor. Um, I was in a room that had no natural light. I had no books and papers for almost five years. Uh, when anyone came in the room, I had to pull a blindfold over my eyes. So um, I had no human contact. And when you're in a situation of that kind, um, but the first thing is, of course, one is angry. Angry at the loss of liberty. Angry at being treated as less than a human being. And you know, to, to feel angry is, is, is quite understandable. But I remember I've written, subsequent to that, I, I wrote some poetry I wish I published. And one poem was about anger, and I, I, it goes as follows. Anger is like a consuming fire seeking all whom it may devour. Do not extinguish the flames totally, but calm yourself by the gentle glow of the embers. And by that I meant that um, anger, if you allow it to fester, will do you more harm than it, uh, than it does against those whom it's held. And yet it's a, a force which we all have. Everybody feels angry at times, but it needn't be a destructive force. You can take it and utilize it and convert it so it becomes a creative force because you can never get rid of it completely. And it's, it's important at times to feel anger, but not allow it to possess you. Um, and, and certainly not to try and say, I'm never angry, I'm always calm, you know, and suppress it. But, so I was angry initially. And then, uh, another thing, when you're in an extended period of solitary confinement, there's a tendency to become deeply introspective. Um, and anybody who's deeply introspective or takes a, a, an inner journey will discover the two sides of um, character, if you like, light and dark, good or evil, call it what you will. And the danger of that is that when you come across the, the negative side, which is in everybody, it's in me, it's in everybody, uh, you could quite easily be swallowed by it and become over depressed and fall into despair. And a possible way, one way of dealing with that is to recognize that that's how we're made. We all have these two sides to ourselves, at least. And somehow try and work for that degree of integration, inner integration. And part of the process, really, to put it very simply, is if we're going to work for peace in the world, if we're going to work for harmony between nations and between people, you have, first of all, to work for your own harmony, your own inner harmony, um, and uh, try and work for your own reconciliation. You know, there is a, a religious saying, 
love God and your neighbor as yourself. Well, in some ways you have to learn to love yourself. And sometimes that's not a very easy process at all. Because you, if you've got any degree of honesty, you'll know yourself pretty well. And you'll know you're not such a fine person. Sometimes you, you'd like to think you are, if you're really truthful. And so uh, there was that period of time when one spent time in introspection and trying to work for harmony. And I, I worked for it by writing in my head. Um, and I wrote my first book in my head. And I developed my mental capacity. The brain, to my mind, is like a, like a muscle. You use it or you lose it. And it's very, very important that the, you keep the brain exercised. And I try to exercise it by writing. And um, I believe, and I mentioned a few moments ago about music, but I believe also about language. Language, like good language, like good music, has the capacity to breathe harmony into the soul. And one of the goals in life really needs to be developing inner harmony, um, which then you begin to practice, hopefully, in your life in relationship to other people. It takes a lifetime. It's not something that's ever achieved fully. When I had my 80th birthday last year, I'm now 81, and I said, you know, someone said, how do you feel at 80? I said, I feel as though I'm just leaving adolescence. <laughs> because it takes a lifetime to actually begin to grow and begin to move and begin to, to develop. So one had to concentrate in those years of captivity on the inner life, if you like, on trying to find some degree of inner harmony and also um, to live in the moment now. Um, we live in normal life. Um, that means life when we're not unduly constrained. Um, we get on with normal life, we get on with our routine, and we live in a sense with an illusion that things are going to be fine tomorrow. When you're in captivity, um, the stunk reality hits you because at any moment someone can come into the room and you could be taken to be tortured or to be killed. Um, and you have to live, you live with that tension, you recognize to yourself, well, now I have life and I must live it as fully as I can at this moment. And the same principle applies, I think, in every everyday life. We could, who knows what tomorrow could bring. You know, we might suddenly fall into some form of disaster or whatever. It could happen to any, it happens to any of us. We just don't know. We have this illusion that it's going to be all right because it's not so immediate, but it's immediate in captivity. And therefore you say, the way to cope with that, live now, live as fully as you can now. It doesn't mean to say for one moment, you don't give any thought for the future or you don't make reasonable preparation for the future. Of course you do. But it does mean to say, you don't, you don't say, right, I'm going to wait until I retire before I begin to enjoy life. 
because that's um, I think that's a fatal fatal thing to do. And when you emerged from that period of solitary <coughs> confinement and came back to um, normal world and came back to your life, how how did you manage that transition? It must have been somehow also difficult in its in its own way. Well, I'd become obviously, as I indicated, deeply introspective, and I'd become accustomed to conversing with myself. You know, we all have that conversation with ourselves. You know, we're doing it all the time. Sometimes when you get older, you verbalize it and people begin to speak when you say, sometimes it's said they're going crazy. They're not going crazy at all. It's just a, just a vocalizing of what's been going on all your life when you're talking to yourself. But uh, when, when you've no one to speak with in captivity, you have this ongoing inner dialogue and then I extended that in writing to have this dialogue with characters who I formed in my mind imaginary characters um, but when I came out I almost I had to learn how to relate to people again with conversation and um, that took a while that took a while I was told that when I came out of an experience like that, or when anybody comes out of an experience of trauma, the way to deal with it is to see and recognize it as though you're coming up from the seabed. If you come up from the seabed, if you're a diver and you come up too quickly, you get uh, nitrogen in the blood, you get the bends, and it's fatal in many cases. Um, same with a traumatic experience. If you've been through a traumatic experience, um, when you are through the immediacy of that, take it gently and slowly to come out. Don't rush and don't think that you're able to do everything immediately. Give yourself time. Now, I was very lucky because I was elected to a fellowship in Trinity Hall, Cambridge. And I was able to write um, and put down the book that I'd written in my head on paper, the, the first book I wrote about my own experiences. And that was in itself a therapeutic exercise, the act of writing, the act of... And the, the simple theory really is this, that if you've been through something that's been particularly difficult or unpleasant or traumatic for you, um, there was a tendency uh, to push it down um, and I, I'm currently speaking with somebody who did just that who was actually uh, captured taken hostage um, eventually released after about a year or so went home and said I don't need any help I'm fine and then 10 months later it resurrected in dreams and nightmares and flashbacks and totally disturbed his life. The simple theory being, of course, which is very understandable, that if you repress something at a later stage, it will involuntarily make its appearance through dreams or flashbacks or in some way or other. And therefore, it is much better to deal with it immediately, if you can, by objectifying it either through writing 
or through discussing with um, with a trained listener or whatever. So you're objectified and you manage it rather than being managed by it. That's the big difference. And uh, I was lucky insofar as I was able to have that opportunity and was able to manage the experience and not to then, which I never have suffered from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I've been fortunate. That's quite um, remarkable. And I think it's very interesting what you say about acknowledging and expressing, finding means that are um, creative ways to express um, the trauma, whether it's through writing that is private or writing that's published in your case, or uh, through therapy and counselling, which is the service that Beyond Conflict is, is, is going to offer um, uh, people who've been through um, a, a trauma through being in conflict zones. Um, and um, uh, you've you've mentioned the the the, the first book that uh, you wrote, um, and um, so it actually picks up on my next uh, question for you, which is that since then you've written a book um, uh, exploring solitude, and you've been very creative writing lots of books and as as well as poetry, and you've got a collection of poetry out of the silence, um, and I've I've kind of honed in on those of those two books of your many books because I'm I'm curious what drew you to themes of solitude and silence. Having experienced um, a long period of solitude, I was interesting and interested to talk with people who had experienced solitude in different ways. And so in the book Solitude, I have recounted uh, a number of encounters that I've had with people who have experienced solitude in many ways. Uh, for example, in Australia, I did a um, a large tour of Australia and went to the very remote parts of Australia to some of the remote farms where I met one lady who had not been into the local town for 10 years who had spent a whole of that time in, in, in the farm and with her family and she was deeply deeply content um, uh, the, because she said, you know, I'm in touch with life here and I'm in touch with the world. Now, she was perfectly able and very good at communicating with other people. She wasn't some sort of long-faced individual who locked herself away. She was actually a very balanced person. I often use the analogy myself about this, that um, primitive man walked the earth barefooted. The next stage was to put on uh, shoes. And the third stage was to cover the earth with concrete. Um, you know, the fact that gradually in our industrial society, we are divorcing ourselves from our natural environment of which we are a part and an essential part. And like it or not, we really do depend for our well-being on an essential relationship with the earth, with, with the, whole, the whole of the world. And we can't divorce ourselves from it. And what has happened in recent years is that we have done that and we have misused the earth. I mean, I'm absolutely appalled at the way in which um, 
people can be so short-sighted as to start building on Greenbelt land and taking away that when apart from even from practical considerations the signs are that we're going to have now to make more use of growing our more of our own land and growing our own food because we'll not be able to import it in the same way absolute policies that are dictated by pure desire for monetary gain rather than for well-being of people well um that's uh, that's one that's one thing though so then i met with her then i went into met somebody who was living in chicago living alone in a flat and deeply deeply alone deeply isolated yet surrounded by thousands of people what a contrast to the person living in australia um which in part goes to goes to show that loneliness and isolation loneliness is is, is not um, so much an absence of people it's a state of mind and community of course is vitally important this lady in the bush in the australian bush backwards i mean really had a small community but she was in commune with herself and in commune with the earth this poor chap in chicago was totally isolated and totally lonely and totally despairing not an uncommon position to be in for many people and then i looked at different forms of solitude i suppose i finished and there are many there are the solitude of the double agent who has to keep a certain part of his life for one reason or another quiet from all from all other people manages that uh, but i finished with uh, talking with a former matron of a hospice who had accompanied people uh, some 1800 people on their last journey out of this world the last the journey we we all take alone and she spoke very movingly about that so it was an examination of different forms of solitude and um, the effect it had on people and how people coped with it I think that's really um, very moving, um, the different the three examples that you've, you've given. And of course, in the current crisis, um, many more of us are, are experiencing solitude um, and uh, or loneliness in different forms because we've had to be uh, at home, um, either on our own or um, uh, um, uh, kind of isolated in the countryside or, or, or whatever. Um, and, and so this kind of uh, it's, it's quite a good point to, to, to start talking about the, the current lockdown and, and the COVID crisis. Um, uh, in terms, for you, your work takes you all over the world. Um, what, was, what has your life been like in the last, what was your life like, no, let me start that again. <laughs> what was your life like before lockdown, just before lockdown, and how has it changed since? Well, life before lockdown was was extremely busy uh, although i'm of the age that i am as i said um i still lead a very very active life and i haven't in any way retired um so i was constantly traveling um both abroad and uh, in this country 
um, conferences, seminars, board meetings, um, you know, the whole, the whole picture. And then suddenly overnight, it stopped. And here was I now in this house in the country with no uh, engagements, um, active engagements, they're all gone, everything gone. Well, um, I, I, to be perfectly honest with you, I have found this period of time to be a highly enjoyable period of time. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it because I said, okay, you, you take, take life as it comes. I really have missed, of course I've missed, many of the engagements and seeing face-to-face -face with people I know and care for and have worked with. Of course I miss that. But <laughs> life goes on, as I was saying earlier. And so in this situation, I say, right, now here we have some new opportunities. Um, first of all, to catch up with, with reading. I have piles and piles of books that I've never read um, and ought to have read. That's one thing. Secondly, try something new, something challenge yourself. And this may make you laugh. I um, started to try, I bought a ukulele and started to, <laughs> started to learn to play the ukulele. Now, I can't play a musical instrument for toffee. But now I can a little bit. I've learned that. <laughs> that's, been, that's been really good. Thirdly, um, you've got the chance now, and you've written many serious books. Have I got something different? So I've just uh, finished, uh, yesterday actually, uh, the third volume of a series of children's stories. Um, the books specially written uh, for children between the age of let's say five and eight um, intended that either they be initially they be read to children and that older children could read them for themselves and if you're going to write a book like that you have to try and write a story that is interesting to the reader as well as to the child listening because if the reader isn't interested then you know and the child doesn't have much chance of the child being interested. So I tried to do that, the balance between fantasy and reality. And these, these stories are all to do with the small animal kingdom. I'll tell you how they started. This is letting you into something that nobody else knows yet. Um, the stories are called the, the, the Tales of Tommy Twitchnose. And Tommy Twitchnose is a mouse who lives with his friends, uh, his family, under the floorboards of a converted barn in Suffolk. And uh, it deals with the whole animal kingdom that live in this region. And how it started was, friends of mine got this barn and they converted it into a very nice house. And they went away for a holiday and they came back and they discovered that the um, the old man's slippers had been eaten by a mouse. <laughs> they were a bit alarmed by this. And so I thought, that gives me the idea of a story. So I got the idea of Tommy, Tommy Twitchnose living beneath the floorboards and all the adventures that they have. 
Oh, they develop um, along with the malls. The malls have developed an underground railway, and the underground railway takes people all, takes all the small animals, and they've got the flying seagull service where Nelson the seagull flies wounded small animals on his back to the animal hospital. And the, the, the I've renamed, this is based on this house, and it's based on a real Suffolk village. Well, I've changed the name. The name of the, of the, the change name is Cheesethorpe. And the last thing, the last chapter of the last volume was where they have a cheese festival in, um, in Cheesethorpe. And we get uh, uh, Monsieur Fromage comes over from France. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> but again, you see, you, imagination. I'm feeling, and, and really, I've really quite enjoyed writing children's stories, you know. I thought, oh, it means so. But the point being, I'm sorry, I'm really digressed rather a long way there. But the, the point being, it's been a really good opportunity to do something new. And that, again, is a key, you know, keep your brain active and, and challenge yourself to do things. I'm not very good. My, my biggest weakness, physical exercise, I hate it. <laughs> I have to do a bit of it, but I don't do much of it. Don't do half enough. I love that. And, and it's lovely to see the sort of warm, cuddly um, side of you, because, of course, we know you generally in, in the pub, in the public uh, domain as a very serious, um, um, weighty chap with gravitas. So it's wonderful to hear you talking about little, little Thomas Trichner. Um, it's interesting talking to different people during this period. Um, some people like you love it. Other people absolutely hate it because uh, like you, they've had busy lives and suddenly they find themselves, um, you know, trapped at home with nothing to do or they have work, they, they work from home, but they miss the contact with, with their colleagues and, and, and so on. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about being present to each moment and um, being trying to be creative, using your brain, trying to find stimulation uh, within yourself, um, and but but accepting that this is where we are now, and in, in a way, perhaps fighting against that, wanting wanting things to be different, is the source of internal conflict and and distress. Um, because I think I, I can also, if I just interrupt a second, sure. just to say, I think I am very fortunate too because. You and I are now speaking to each other. We're, we're speaking live using the, the internet. And I mean, I'd strongly urge anybody who, who doesn't use the internet, you know, older people who sometimes may be afraid of it, really do use it because you can be put in touch with people in a very, very positive way. I mean, each, each week, um, I, I founded an organization called Hostage International, where we give support to hostage families and released hostages. And each week I have regular conversations with two or three people who've been released. Uh, and we talk for an hour each week. And it's a very personal and face-to-face -face encounter. And I'm, I'm an Anglican uh, member of the Church of England, but I'm also a Quaker. And believe it or not, we've had weekly, on Sunday, Quaker meetings. Well, a Quaker meeting, for everybody who knows it, is where you sit in silence. You say, how do you do that with a, with a computer? But, you know, you can get all the faces on the screen. 
you can sit and when someone has something worthwhile to say they say it but the fact is you're sitting there and you're putting an hour aside for that deep level of concentration and reflection so there's no need to be totally alone and totally isolated there's no need for it if you will think beyond the boundaries that you've set yourself or have been set for you and so apart from um using um the internet and and uh, th these kinds of technologies um what reflections can you offer to our listeners about coping with lockdown um, and the impact of covid on our lives well i don't think any of us really i really understand what the impact the long-term impact is going to be yet i think it all depends on the way things play out i think it is going to be different very different um, one of the, on the positive side, I hope it will get more people, uh, and including myself, uh, to think more uh, realistically about what really is important in life, um, and to concentrate more on some of the essential values. I think I hope it can do that, and I think it is doing that in a number of cases. I hope that it will mean that we really speed up our efforts um, to have a cleaner environment, uh, which is essential. I hope it will really stimulate us to rethink how we are using and how we intend to use um, the green land and the green space that's available to us. I hope it'll do that for, for, all, for all of us. And I hope we should be stimulated in that direction and not just fall back into the old polluting ways, which are fatal to us in the long run. It's going to, it will destroy us in the long run. But to take some of these changes and to apply them is going to mean some degree of commitment and discipline. And the fact of the matter is that um, you know, it's so easy to slip back into old ways. But I don't think in some ways the circumstances are going to allow that. I mean, I have a very great concern and a great feeling for people who have been trained in a particular direction whose jobs have gone and who will not necessarily return. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine who is um, an airline pilot and he was sad you know, that redundancy notices are pending and that if you're 40 and you've got a family and a mortgage and you're trained in a certain way, rather a certain skill to fly an aeroplane and you're made redundant, what do you do? What do you do? Well, all I can say is uh, don't despair. When I came out of captivity, my job had been held open for me. I had a regular salary job all my life. And captivity taught me to, taught me this. I, I said to myself, I'm not going back to that job. I'm actually going to do what I really want to do, earn my own living by writing and lecturing. Now, had I not had the experience of being captured and being isolated, I would never have had the courage to launch out independently and that experience of having to bear those years 
gave me enough resources and recognition that I had the inner resources to launch out in a new direction. And I think that could be, for some people, something that is positive from this experience. Don't regard it as being totally negative. Difficult without a question. And very, very hard for some people. Particularly, it's not fair, I and mean, some people will find it harder than others. But don't despair. Try and take it as an opportunity to launch out in a new direction and do what you really want to do. And um, I think you'd be surprised at how many people can do that. Well, that's quite an inspiring note to end on. Don't despair. Take it as an opportunity um, and uh, launch out. Do what you want to do. That is a wonderful message for uh, and a wonderful way to, to end this podcast. So, Terry Waite, thank you so much for being our first guest on the Beyond Conflict podcast. Thank you very much, Angela. Bye-bye. Our guest was Terry Waite. For photos and links to some of the things we talked about, as well as music credits, please go to our show page at beyond-conflict.co.uk and click through to podcast. Beyond Conflicts is the mental health charity for conflict zones. We offer free mental health support to ordinary people affected by war, terrorism and displacement. And before we go, here is our co-founder, Edna Fernandez, to tell us something about Beyond Conflict's work. Hello, I'm Edna Fernandez, and I'm the co-founder of Beyond Conflict. Uh, Beyond Conflict was set up in 2018, and it is a, a mental health charity for post-conflict zones. Um, and we aim to help children and women who are suffering from trauma or the after effects of war, terrorism, or displacement. Uh, our first two projects are set to be in southern Iraq, helping a group of widows and orphans in a city called Najaf. And our second project is in the Cox's Bazaar refugee camp in Bangladesh, which is the world's largest refugee camp and which is home to more than one million refugees who fled the violence in Myanmar. Now, what we seek to do is to address the psychological fallout of war, terrorism and displacement. We at Beyond Conflict believe that it is very important to address the psychological fallout of war, terrorism and displacement, because we believe there can be no effective long term rebuilding of the peace and also of ordinary lives unless we do that. And so how do we do that? What we do is we are working with some of the world's top trauma counseling psychiatrists from the Royal College of Psychiatrists in London. We are working with a group of volunteer psychologists as well, based in London. And these are people that have been going around the world and training people at frontline level on how to offer counseling to the most vulnerable people. And so these, these people have agreed to work with Beyond Conflict. We have partners on the ground. And what we do is we take our psychiatrists out to the post-conflict zone and they train frontline workers in situ and show them how they can help their own people. The ethos of our charity is one of partnership. We very much believe that we should be holding hands 
across the world with people in their own countries who need help. So it's very much a partnership. It's very much about bringing people together of different religions, of different cultures, of different countries, and working together to address this problem. We're a very small charity, and we're starting small, but we believe that one day we can replicate this model in a number of different countries, wherever there is need. Uh, how can you help? You can help by donating via our website. You can help by writing to us and asking if you can become a volunteer. You can suggest ideas. You can fundraise yourself and then send us the money. Really, it's up to you how you help. Mental health is a huge issue right now. And I know the world is very, very preoccupied with COVID-19, rightly so. But this doesn't mean that the mental health crisis in post-conflict zones has gone away. What it means is there is another layer of trauma for these people living in post-conflict zones. On top of all the issues that they have dealt with, losing their homes, losing their jobs, losing loved ones, losing their livelihoods, losing a whole way of life, they now have COVID-19 to deal with. So we believe that it's never been more important than now to reach out to those people. And as soon as it is possible to physically send out our trainers to the field, we'll be resuming work as usual. Thank you. To find out more about Beyond Conflict and how you can help, go to beyond-conflict.co.uk. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are at Beyond Conflict 1. And that's the numeral 1, at Beyond Conflict numeral 1. And on Instagram, we are at Beyond Conflict Charity. From me, Yang Mei Ui, thanks for listening and keep well till next time. Mm-hmm.